0: Good afternoon to all the UK Column uh, listeners. I'm back with another gutsy woman, and I'm delighted today to be talking to Professor Diane Rasmussen-McCady. And this is a very special lady because she's been a strong supporter of the UK Column for a very long time. And uh, she's also somebody who was kind enough to invite the team to a wedding, which we still remember. Diane, thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thanks, Brian. Thanks for
0: the invitation. Well, it's a pleasure. And um, what's special about this one is that we've, well, thanks to your generosity, we've met each other in a, a very particular social environment. That was your wedding up in um, Edinburgh, which was really quite something last year. And we got a chance to chat then, of course. But you've agreed to talk to us about some Um, Much more personal. Well, can it be more personal than a wedding? No, of course it can't. But (laughs) this is professional, personal stuff where you've come up against the establishment. And uh, this this is this is really excellent because we're very keen to know more about how professional people are getting on in their various specialist areas and what sort of barriers they come up against. But just before we get on to that, for the audience who might not know about your special occasion, would you just just give a little bit of a summary about how you and and John met, set the scene about that side before we get on to the professional side?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. It's a great story. Uh we uh we met through the UK column chat box, actually. And uh back during the days when it was forbidden to go outside and everyone was alone and lonely back in the 2020-2021 sort of time period. uh, I just one day happened to put into the chat box at one o'clock and I just said hello from Glasgow and usually when I go into the chat box I don't ever say Glasgow that's where I was living at the time I just say hello everyone and uh, so I was in there as purple moon at the time uh, thinking that because of all the things going on institutionally, that it was better for me to stay anonymous through the UK column. And someone called John McCaddy replied and said, hello, I'm in Glasgow too. And I was like, really? And so then we started chatting in the chat box and uh, uh, then we realized we're living two miles apart. And so... Then we started talking on Telegram and just sending lots of private messages back and forth. And the way that we got even a little bit more into communication was he decided to start a UK column Scotland Telegram group, which no longer exists because there was too much spam. and He just couldn't keep up with it. And he posted a link into the chat box saying, hey, if you're in Scotland, join our Telegram group. Uh, But me being a computer information scientist, librarian person, I corrected his link because his link was wrong and nobody could get it to work. So I fixed it for him, put the correct link in and then it worked. Uh, So we were the first two people in the group and he started doing things like we used to watch live broadcasts on the weekend, watching the protests and the COVID protests in London and so on Um, and just sort of had little watch parties and that eventually it led to meeting in person and one thing led to another and then eventually um, he proposed and it was a really amazing thing I think the day of the proposal well obviously for a lot of reasons but because he was we were kind of lifted the mood. He proposed in a in a restaurant during a time when everyone else was wearing masks and feeling very nervous about being in public. And we were just there with no mask and enjoying ourselves and being happy. And the whole room applauded. And, uh, eventually he started writing to you guys to announce first our relationship and then our engagement. And I remember early on some of the photos and the, the proposal video, I think David Scott played on the, the broadcast. So, uh, Eventually, we decided, that as we started to think about the wedding, that uh, we wanted to um, think about who was going to be in the wedding, because we both have uh, complicated family histories. My father had passed away. Uh, my mother passed away in December of 21, which I believe is probably a, a medically related situation, but we know it was going on at the time. And so he said, well, your father was called David. Why don't we have David Scott, see if he would give you away? And I was like, are you kidding me? Really? Uh, So he accepted. And so then that eventually led to thinking, well, let's let's invite everyone to the wedding and just see what happens. And you all showed up and Alex was was best man and. And you did some wonderful Bible readings and Mike emceed the the speeches at the reception. I'm not sure how he felt about it, but he did it. And uh, it was just a wonderful day. And I was so happy that that you could all be there. And thank you again for the dance. That was lovely.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was a lovely day. And we've got lots of fond fun memories of it. And it, it was just unbelievably unique and special. So, yeah, tremendous. Uh, so that's the background. People people know how 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 you fit in there with the UK column. Um, I'm going to tease you a bit and say that you've told us this story in a strong Scottish accent. Where where are you? Where are you from originally? And how did how did you end up north of the border?
1: Well, yeah, I grew up on the US Canadian border, um, so sort of half Canadian, half American. Um, so I was born on the U.S. side, uh, but have Canadian connections through my father. Um, I did my Ph.D. in Texas, and actually all my higher education was done in Texas, and moved back to Canada for a few years to work there as an academic, moved back to the U.S., uh, watching how the higher education system was going uh, throughout North America. I was just getting really disappointed. About the fact that they just weren't being funded uh, through proper channels, and tuition was was going up, and standards were decreasing, and we were being pressured to increase marks to make students happy, and it all just felt very uh, consumerist rather than education. So I randomly applied for a job at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, thinking, oh, they don't know who I am. So they'll never call me so but they called me (laughs) and in 2014 I found myself on a plane flying to Glasgow never been to Scotland in my life not sure what to expect and I had a job offer before I left came back in 2015 worked there uh, for through the end of 2022 when I finally got a professorship in Edinburgh and uh so now I'm here and I've been told now that I'm married to a Scot, I am actually Scottish, although I'll probably never have the accent. But I, yeah, I'm here and that's it.
0: OK, so, so what, what was the in what capacity was your was that appointment then? What's your specialist area?
1: Right. So a lecturer in library and information science. So I'm a librarian by profession. I uh, do research in the area of why well, I'm now a professor of social informatics, which broadly looks at the interactions between people and information technology, in a lot of cases. So I do a lot of I, as of, I used to be a university librarian, then I sort of realized that I didn't. I wanted to make things better for people and how they find information, how they interact with information and how they work with things and how we do provide better services for them. And so then I decided to get a Ph.D. to improve the field. And so I spent a few years doing my Ph.D. part time while I was working as a librarian full time and eventually went into full time academia. Uh, so that I finished my Ph.D. in 2006, which was interesting because it actually ended up being I decided to study news photographers and how they how they archive their photos for retrieval, for the publication of the newspaper and so on. It eventually turned into, without my planning it, uh, news photographers and photojournalists wanting me to get the message out about how photographers have to make their newspapers happy if they work for newspapers by essentially using their photos to lie about stories in terms of doing photoshops in terms of choosing the right photos that might show different emotions, whatever they think is going to get the most at the time newspaper purchases, but maybe not page views or Twitter likes or whatever it is that they're going for now. Uh but that was really the message that I got. Uh, And these were people that covered very serious situations. Some were more human interest, some were uh, and then that won Pulitzer Prize winners for covering the invasion of Iraq when uh, the United States oh. was there in 2005 oh. and showed dead soldiers with showing well, the Iraqi soldiers actually had these really had almost no proper gear, but the Americans came in with all of this gear and and showing the, you know, the sandstorms that happened in Baghdad and altering the, the, the color of the photo content to make it look like it was all covered in a sea of red when actually it was brown and just a lot of things that they were doing to try to manipulate the emotions that were conveyed in the photos that were telling the news to the public. So that was not something that I was expecting to find, but a UK column audience might find that interesting in particular. So
0: Well, I, I find that tremendously um, interesting. Would it be true to say that was um, was that a wake-up point for you? Did you learn something which you felt, changed the way you looked at the world?
1: It did, Um, a lot of things changed the way I looked at the world before that, especially hearing those stories, those war stories then and comparing my earliest encounter with war indirectly and and journalism directly was when CNN covered the origin of Iraq and was it 1990, 91, that time period. Uh, I was a teenager at the time, I was terrified Watching you know the gas masks that they were the CNN journalists were wearing and hiding under their tables in their hotel rooms and my parents fighting about it because my father was a Republican my mother was a Democrat and fighting over you know was it really over oil was it something bigger my father believed it was freedom my mother believed it was just because they had oil and the gas masks and the whole thing and and you're at that age you're so impressionable anyway, right? And you have so many things that you don't understand, but that was my first encounter with it. And it actually made me want to become a journalist. Uh, and so I was the editor of my high school newspaper for a while. Even back then I was getting in trouble for my views <laughs> because I had a column that I could say whatever I wanted. And it was usually not in agreement with the the other students or, or even our, our teacher who taught us journalism. Uh, but even back then I was fighting censorship and saying nobody can tell me what I can and can't say.
0: I find this fascinating because in the, in the other women I've talked to in the Gutsy Women ser- series, they've all got us, they've all demonstrated a rebellious streak fairly early on. And, uh-huh. I, I, and I think if I remember correctly, a couple of them said, well, actually at school, I had some issues. I challenged things. Maybe we're, we're seeing, um, a characteristic here that uh, if you're going to be a gutsy woman in later life, you start off challenging the system a bit in your youth.
1: Yeah, my my first my first publication in the this, the city newspaper was when, and, and I guess you maybe have to understand a little bit of American high school culture to understand why this would be a problem. But so I was in the band in high school, and. You know, we live, we were, it was really hot when we started practicing in August and school started in September, but they said we couldn't wear shorts. But I didn't think that that was fair because the cheerleaders could wear their little, tiny little cheerleader skirts to school, but the girls in the band couldn't wear shorts. And I was like, how is this fair that they get to wear those? Is it because they're cheerleaders and we're not? And, and so I wrote a, a, a news a letter to the editor when I was 15 or 16 complaining about this. <laughs> so yeah I think it is something there is something
0: there yeah brilliant well I'm always thinking about I I think it takes some guts to change from working in Texas to getting on an aircraft and going to Scotland I mean you know it's pretty scary for me going north of the border for all sorts of reasons (laughs) and you come all the way from America so just tell us a little bit about how did you find the different culture
1: it was definitely very different here. Even if you go between US and Canada, there are still differences. They're, they're much more subtle, right? Because um, Canada is kind of a mix of the UK and the US. And I think they have a little bit of an identity issue <laughs> because they don't really know. They don't have their own. Well, we do this like the Americans do it. We do this like the British do it. Um,
0: don't forget it, the French. Otherwise, yeah, you're in French, trouble. <laughs>
1: the French come in and make you learn a second language, <laughs> and then there's the indigenous population as well. So it is an interesting mix of culture, and that was actually one of my fu- first funded pieces of research, was how to identify Canadian culture on online specifically at the time because uh, when I was my so after I left Texas, I went to Canada, which was actually quite a big culture shock, especially getting used to the cold weather again. Uh, the other part of it was me trying to understand uh, how all these different things factored in. And so at the time the Vancouver Olympics was happening, it was that 2012, I think, 2010, 2012, yeah, 2010. And so we were interested in what were the things influencing how people perceive Canadian culture from around the world. And one of the things that my my colleague was not happy to find out about as a French Canadian, was that the the most influential Canadian cultural artifact, if you want to call him that at the time, was, was Justin Bieber. If you looked at things like Google searches and what was popular, where she was hoping to find this more refined, you know, at least William Shatner or somebody who was, you know, had some substance. But it was Justin Bieber because, but there was so much polarity going on. With Justin Bieber because you had the teenage girls who were in love with him and everyone else who thought he was a waste of space and so you could see that even back then you know we see the polarity now with with serious topics but even back then you could watch the the YouTube comments and the 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 Facebook posts and all of this everyone fighting about whether he was valuable or not but at the time according to Google he even outranked the Vancouver Olympics as being more influential in terms of Google searches uh, compared to yeah, you know, other other things. Yeah.
0: Okay, so so if that that's culture, that side of the line. Just come back to how, how did Scotland <laughs> right. hit you? Right. So. The cold, so, the rain.
1: Yeah. So I think it was once I got to Scotland, I was really confused. My first interview was 2014, so the technology wasn't as good, but it was over Skype because I did guess they didn't want to fly you in for the first interview, uh, and I couldn't understand anybody's accent. <laughs> They were all from Glasgow and I was terrified coming to the interview because I thought that was just an hour. And I've got to talk to them for the whole day. Right. And be in person and go to lunch. And and so they were teasing me about, you know, they were going to feed me haggis at lunch. And I luckily I didn't have to do that. Um, I didn't want to offend them in case I didn't like it. And yeah, it, it, at the time as well, I was a bit nervous because that's when this, the independence referendum was going on. And then that was 2014, which is exactly when I was interviewing. And I thought, well, if I, I didn't understand evolved nations and all of those things. So that was another thing for me to learn. And so I thought, well, if I get this job, will I get a visa through Scotland or through the UK? Do they know this? Will they be able to hire me? And I am really glad that I came when I did though, when the city was still open and I could still get around and get to know things and, and, uh, if i came in 2020 like some students did for example when i was when i was teaching them in 2020 i don't i think i would have just given up and gone back because coming here without knowing anybody without knowing how things worked i didn't know how to get a flat i didn't know how to get uh a car i didn't know how to get a phone contract because i had no credit here uh, even though i had a prof- I was a professional with a contract and so that's one of the things that I think bothers me now that I've, now that I've been here for nine years and I know how, how things work better. And I'm married to a Scott, when you've referenced. When I see the illegal migration going on right now, knowing how much work it took for me, how much money it took, all of the things I had to learn, all of the obstacles that I had to overcome when I was brought here legally as a skilled worker. And what we see now with people coming in, just being given things uh, it seems to me that there's quite a tiered system, and those of us who are brought here because of our education to teach and do research with British children and children who come here from other countries, uh, we are definitely not at the top of the scale. And so I see a lot of things differently, I guess, maybe even more so than people who who live here. Um, I'm I'm applying for British citizenship this year now that my marriage is done and I have all of that stuff done, so I will be able to have dual citizenship. Um, but i'm i'm comfortable here now that my my north american citizenship really is not important to me anymore so i think that's just quite a bit for the fact that although it took some work and a lot of money and a lot of a lot of obstacles i'm i'm really really comfortable here now and i love it and i don't see myself going anywhere
0: yeah brilliant and and you can understand the people now because i i can still have problems depending on who who it is and oh, yeah. um, what they're talking about yeah.
1: Yeah. What's interesting to me is the fact that the UK is relatively small and physically compared to the US and Canada, but that when I talk to people over here who don't know me, they're like, you know, they have this idea of what an American accent is, and despite how vast <laughs> the US and Canada is in terms of size, they just think American accent, whereas here, you can go to different parts of Glasgow or Edinburgh and they sound different. Um and just you can just travel a couple of miles and people sound completely different and use different words yeah, yeah.
0: the bit that i've always found uh interesting and enjoyable is is when you meet people um uh, chinese people people in a chinese restaurant and they're north of the border and they speak in a strong scottish accent yeah. um so i i've i've really enjoyed I've always really enjoyed those nuances of people who come, well, come from other countries. But then when they learn English, it's got, it's got the local um, dialect over the top of it. I, I, I always think that's really good. So you, you come in and you get established in Scotland. You start to work professionally, but life isn't all smooth. You came up against obstacles. So this is heading towards yeah. the gutsy woman bit. What What is it that you've come up against that you that's I think it's it's challenged you and you've risen to that challenge and you've said, nope I'm not going to be forced into a corner?
1: Yeah, that's for sure. Once I got past all of those basics of life and started to settle in, there's a, a lot around. So there's a lot of politics around research funding. Mm-hmm. Right. And. know just to give you the broad and i'll give you some specific examples as well the broad area of research funding in the uk is very politicized Um, if you don't fit in with the right agenda it's going to be very difficult for you to get funding and as an academic you have to get funding or else you know you're you might as well not have a career anymore
0: <laughs> it is is that because you have to get the funding because that funding comes in and supports your university your place of work so
1: yeah so and it's it's interesting because so there's there's two different ways that universities get funding right one is students and one is research and the research funding is actually more important if you want to advance in academia and so you could you could do you could be an amazing teacher, lecturer, the students love you. But if you apply for promotion and you don't have any research funding, you're not going to get the promotion that you want. You might not even get a permanent contract if you're on a temporary contract. Luckily, I was permanent here from the start. It was just a matter of promotion uh, and you know how that would look for me. So I've done well. So I started as a lecturer and it, got promoted to senior lecture while I was at Strathclyde and then I had to move to get professor. Uh, I, But what was interesting about the different things that I was finding about learning how funding works and how what we need for funding is that it needs to be aligned with certain things. So the research UK Research Council's European funding is different. It's still got an agenda, but the UK Research Council's funding you have to show things that you're for example contributing to the development of the un uh, what is the 19 goals of the un you have to show how your how your research links to those sustainable goals if you don't believe in them <laughs> then you know you have to pretend and i'm not good at pretending i it just doesn't work for me so it you, you get yourself into this position where what are you going to do you're going to either you're going to just you find something else to do? Do you accept that you'll never get promotion um, and that your colleagues probably won't like you because you don't fit into the way they're all programmed to think, the way they're all got their own little things going on about believing what is important and what isn't, or you know what do you do with that? So um, I have a long history of doing research related to health and mental health and women's health so things that are particular interest to me for for personal reasons as well so as as a result when everything happened in 2020 and 2021 uh i refuse to use the word pandemic anymore by the way just for uh sake of clarity uh but when all of that happens because it was more than a if it was a pandemic, it was more than a, it was an attack on our society. Um, so during that time period, I was asked to support one of our research students to do some work with an NHS board, and I won't say which one. I said, okay, well, I wanted the student to be able to have some money. There was some money sitting around that was available that was still linked to the NHS and to the university. I said, okay, I'll supervise him for a few months. I was one of his academic supervisors anyway. So we started having these regular meetings and he needed the experience, he needed the money. That's great, we'll get some publications out of it. So the topic of the research specifically was vaccine hesitancy, COVID misinformation, and as you would call it, behavioral psychology. And what they wanted us to do was to figure out how to use applied behavioral psychology techniques to convince in the in this situation particularly young people to get jabbed to get vaccinated. I I, I couldn't I just couldn't deal with this. I, I played along with it at first for the benefit of the student thinking he needs money, he needs the experience. Um, and I, I will say in a personal note as well that, uh i knew from the very beginning something was completely wrong with the whole the whole agenda i I never considered getting vaccinated ever but i got confirmation from that early on from both my gp and my uh consultant gynecologist who told me stay away from them completely because personally i had i've survived through a blood clot in 2013 caused by medication so When I first heard the slightest hint of you know blood clots going around and and these you know risk factors I first I talked to both of my doctors and they said don't do it they said you're at greater risk of dying from a blood clot from one of these things than you are from dying from a respiratory virus so I had that to to go by but it was so scary internally with the university president constantly sending out messages, get jabbed, wear your mask, do your test before you come to campus, all these things, and I just, I just didn't say anything. Uh, Really wasn't, at the time, just considering how things were so scary, I just, for a while I just stayed quiet and didn't, nobody asked me directly and I didn't say anything. So when I started to go to these meetings with the students and with the the NHS uh, consultants, they were wanting to know from me as a researcher in the area of social informatics and, and sharing information, um, what ways were best to write Twitter messages or or social media messages, what platforms should we be using? How should we say this? How do we get young people to get jabbed? How do we let them know it's still okay to, if you want one and you still want to, and you want to get pregnant later, it's gonna be okay. And I said, I was thinking to myself, we don't know. We don't have any idea. This is all too new, and and I don't know if I should be promoting this, and I don't want to make any claims about health because I'm not a health practitioner, I'm not even qualified one way or the other. And the other thing that was striking to the student who was very you know 21, 22, was that the health boards were completely out of line with understanding young people. You would think that they would have had some handle on this.
0: You talked about the funding council putting the money in hmm. The, the project and you correct me if I've got this wrong, the project that the student was doing was on this particular subject of of basically applied psychology to increase the take up of vaccines. Yeah. But where was the the initial specification for this research? Was that coming from the health boards themselves or was it coming from somewhere else?
1: It was from the health boards and it was from another academic who has a, who was from psychology and has a specialization in so-called vaccine hesitancy. So the problem was that they felt like they had an understanding of psychology and of and their own motivation, but they needed me as the so-called expert in information sharing and social media to say, well how do we how do we take this and put it online to this group of people? So they really had, as far as I could tell, after going to these meetings every week for a few months before I got out of it, and I'll I'll tell you about that as well, they had absolutely no idea that they were important, that they were good, that they would save anybody's life. They just knew that they were doing it, and I, I don't think that they had any understanding of what they were promoting or what they were doing or what the consequences would be. I, it's like, you know, I had all of these public health people and MDs and, you know, medical doctors trying to say, we've got to get everyone vaccinated, especially the young people. And they never answered why. And so it just felt very disingenuous and very like, this is really strange, but they were very insistent about it. Like this was the most important thing. And in and their, in, in their lives at that moment was getting these needles into people. And I, I couldn't understand it. I really I had no idea.
0: And, and were you were you able to speak to any other professional colleagues about your concerns?
1: No, I didn't know anyone that I could speak to because they were all completely on board with the whole thing. They were very um, militant. <laughs> the first time I went back to campus, uh, just to give you an example of how I couldn't talk to anybody, I they had the you remember the track and trace and the all the id stuff which i never did so but this the campus had been set up so that you had to swipe your id card to get into the buildings this this was the first time i tried to get back into my office and i forgot that i it didn't have it with me because i never needed it before and i hadn't been on campus in over a year and the person in front of me said where's your card i said i oh i forgot it i'm sorry could you let me in please behind you he said, well, we're not supposed to do that because of track and trace. I'll do it this time, but next time you better have your card with you. It's was another academic colleague. Uh, and I was, you know, I was uh, had other colleagues who were, when I started having my labs again, I didn't wear a mask. I didn't make the students wear masks. We were sitting at computer labs. They had them all spaced out anyway at the computers. January, they wanted the windows open for ventilation. Everyone was freezing. <laughs> so I was going to sit there freezing with a mask on, but I had I had a couple of colleagues walking up and down the aisles in my labs and then getting messages sent back to my students and to me, even though I was a program director, saying, I was in your lab today and you weren't wearing your masks and people were drinking water and that's, this is unacceptable. It's like, we had you know, cafes on campus that had been turned to places to pick up their free lateral flow test kits. We had all of the signage and everything ruining all the buildings. So I didn't know anyone that I could talk to professionally.
0: And you've got people essentially spying on each other, colleagues and maybe friendly colleagues yeah. spying on each other.
1: It was very, very scary feeling. And for him to under that person in particular who was sending the emails to undermine my authority over my labs, my students and my program, telling me that I wasn't enforcing it and I wasn't being compliant and I wasn't making sure that the students were not my job. I'm not the mask police.
0: (laughs) So where, where did this take, where did this take you? You, you're, you're involved in this. You don't like what's happening. What, what do you do?
1: Uh, with the funding.
0: Well, with, with the whole project, the funding's part of it.
1: Yeah. So, uh, we reached the point to where we had used up the left, the funding that was just kind of waiting to be spent. And, but then the, uh, the public health consultants tried to talk me into doing a bigger project and there was a substantial amount of money involved, uh, potentially. And uh, I had a couple of sleepless nights and talked to John about it and he said, "You have to do what feels right for you. You know what, what's in your gut. You know to go on with your series. What's in your gut? What do you feel is right?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not right to, to, to continue to do this. And yeah, it might have actually got me faster promotion. My dean would have been thrilled, but they wanted to do a larger program, and what we had focused on was a very small sort of group." Within one health board, but they wanted to, to continue to expand it out, and I, I just thought I can't do this. So I just, I just, I didn't even. I just told them. I said, "I'm sorry, I can't continue this. Uh, I've got to prioritize other things," and just kind of graciously bowed out of the whole thing, and I felt much better for it.
0: What What was the reaction from them to you doing this then?
1: they were really shocked they were like well this is a great opportunity we have a chance here to convince people to (laughs) go along with this agenda and uh i i wrote a, a short response remember at the time i i didn't go into a lot of detail i said i just i don't feel like it's the right thing for me to do and they didn't ask for anything further but after i said that they left me alone um i'm sure there were there were consequences from my decision for sure i and people were able to see that i wasn't participating and i really i would say became ostracized from a lot of my my closest colleagues um it was not comfortable it was it was actually became a rather stressful environment for me to be in um because they could see without me ever saying it that I wasn't going along with things when they would tell their vaccination stories and this work week I was never
0: off <laughs> I was healthy <laughs> they didn't come to you though at any stage and sort of say well it, you know tell us why have you got these concerns and what you're thinking about were they interested in why you had reservations
1: yeah I think they they couldn't understand it because in their minds the people that were not going along with it were the uneducated people they're like Diane you're educated you you know you're successful Why you? <laughs> like to them it was like a division between the educated people doing all the compliance and the non-educated crazy conspiracy theorists not going along with it and to them and i think still to this day now that i'm much more open about who i am what i believe they still don't understand. They, they, they just can't see it. Um, and why it would be that way? Um, and I and I've I've listened to a lot of slurs, even in meetings, about, you know, so well, who are we going to put on this committee? Oh, well, definitely not the anti vaxxers. I mean, I hear those kinds of comments even now, I hear them. Um, you know, and when I finally have said to people, well, I never got vaccinated. Either there's two things that happen, either complete silence, you know, like I never wear a mask and I got vaccinated, never tested, <laughs> still alive, a complete silence. And I'm not sure if that means that they're thinking horrible things about me in their heads, if it means that are they at this point second guessing what they did back then? Or are they planning their escape from me? I, I, I really do not know what they're thinking, but the little comments do get to a certain, what they think about me and what I did and
0: didn't do at the time. But this, this is an amazing place that this conversation has brought us to because we're talking about, um, we're talking about not understanding what people are thinking. We are talking about people thinking things and we don't know why they're thinking that. This is, this is, this is a major, for me anyway, this is a major change in the sort of relationship between people. They're not dealing with each other on a friendly, professional basis. And I I have a different opinion to the other person. And so the person says to me, that's really interesting, Brian. Why do you think that? That's not happening. What's happening? What I think you're describing mm. is a wall going up. You are yeah. no longer part of our club. And you've used the word ostracized I, I was going to ask you whether that was an appropriate description
1: absolutely I I felt it from March 2020 when the announcement was made you know get everything that you want for your off op- from your offices for the next two weeks right you're going to be working from home right so I went in for the last time, got everything I needed the books I needed um, my laptop accessories all those things and I tears were streaming down my face absolutely I felt like it was an end to something I didn't know what right I was like it's going to be more than two weeks they would have told us to pack up our offices right so even back then I had my suspicion but everyone else was just going about it oh there's this dangerous thing we've got to stay home we've got to stay safe it's safer that way and I think from watching them, they really felt like they were doing the right noble best thing by staying home. They didn't know why, right? It just it I I was, I felt like I was the only one who was starting to feel, well immediately impacted, helping my students with their mental health, which was declining and the mental health services on campus were closed. I couldn't refer them. and I had students who were, talking about taking their lives because they were so isolated because they were in their little tiny rooms in the residence halls and so on. I had nowhere to send them. All I had was an email address when they're telling me and I'm not qualified to help with them with that level of crisis, right? Um, but nobody saw the consequences. They just thought, oh, we're saving lives. And then, oh, well, I had a little bit of a sore throat. So my husband and kids are staying on one side of the house and I'm on the other side of the house and we're wearing a mask in the house. And I, yeah. How did you, I don't know, I don't know how anyone could have lived that way, but when they would share these stories, and they started to share their stories about how sick they got when they got vaccinated, and I just stayed quiet, I never, I never had uh, anything to share. It's kind of the same way now when I'm on a a Zoom call, and I'm the only one without pronouns next to my name, it's the same kind of feeling, like, something's not quite the same about this woman,
0: (laughs) You're under a lot of pressure yourself. I mean you're describing it. You're know, ostracized, you're being treated in a strange way. You're under and you're you're having to deal with emotional problems from students who are who are suffering as a result of the isolation in, in lockdown and the and the rules and the regulations. That's all pressure. Did you go looking for answers as to what you were experiencing? What how how did you approach these problems?
1: Yeah, so I did things the way I know how to do them, which is to do research. I started doing a lot of reading uh, to kind of understand what was going on. And unfortunately, I found a lot of the research to be quite biased. And all the academic research that was coming out at the time around all these behaviors were all in support of them. Um, And there was sort of all of the COVID-related research at least in my field in information science and computing was all like, oh, well, information has the power to make, to keep people safe. And here's how to keep them in lockdown. And here's what we need to do. It was all of this, you know, but there was nothing for for me to go to as resources. I started to think if I publish what I really want to publish right now, won't get published. Um, the only thing that I was able to publish was something that a student did, which was a study on mask wearing, where she looked at opinions of mask wearing and how it changed over time. And actually what we found uh, looking at social media posts within the British public was that they became, it. their compliance didn't really change, but every time you could also see a pattern from when the, they, they would wrap up the fear that the sentiment about mask wearing got more positive. So the fear was working to get people to do whatever they think, you know, we didn't do the same study on vaccines, but definitely with the mask, cause I would imagine that every time a new booster came out, every time they ramped up the fear, every time Matt Hancock came out or whatever, or Nicholas Sturgeon up here uh, came out, I'm sure it kind of maybe convinced them to go out and do more and more and more.
0: Well, and of course we we get evidence of this from the um, the minutes of that meeting with Spy B, where yeah, I, it, was it May twenty one? I I've lost track of the time slightly, but in in the minutes they were absolutely talking about ramping up fear in mm-hmm. order to get make people more compliant, and yeah. also the insidious thing of of using people within communities to you know, police other people. And they even had to put a caveat on that one to say we have to be careful with this. Otherwise, the implication was we could end up with violence.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the the, the academics at the time, as you know, were Debbie Sridhar, you know, the ones who were really pushing this agenda. It wasn't Norman Fenton. It wasn't me. Uh, it wasn't those of us who were seeing through it. And it it only became possible it's still it's still not possible, I don't think to uh, yeah. I don't know I, I I can speak about it now. If I were to try to publish findings in support of seeing things in in different views, I, I actually went to a conference panel uh, yeah, a conference last year I was at where the topic was uh, conspiracy theorists. And I was like, oh, I've got to go to this one, right? I'm I'm a lifetime member of the UK column. I'm definitely a conspiracy theorist, right? <laughs> um, and their whole the whole agenda for the the research was about what they need to do to debunk or prebunk information for conspiracy theorists, so that they stop uh, tr- so they stop believing in their conspiracies and start believing everything the government tells you.
0: So they, you said they had a conference. Are you able to tell us who they were?
1: Well, the conference was uh, one of the main conferences for information science. The panel was a group of researchers from the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. And I went thinking I could have an actual conversation with people who might be looking at how people see things differently. I did some theoretical research of sort of like how people come to understand things, and that the reason that people—the only thing I could really find was that the reason people start believing other things is because they see that there's a reason not to believe the government. You know, whether it was something that happened to them, or uh, you know, my husband's story of what what the NHS did to his his health and his his physicality early on, and how his his cerebral palsy became worse because of a very bad outcome of a surgery. Um, So there are things that happen to people that I believe makes them realize this isn't right. Uh, Sometimes I wonder if maybe people haven't, maybe they haven't had the right experiences. Uh, When I told a close group of friends of mine, uh, they're not not academics, but a group of Americans that I know here in the UK, and I, I finally came, sort of came out to them. That's a term from the past, isn't it? came out to them about uh, not being vaccinated. Uh, And I was worried about them that I would be ostracized from my closest friends here. And they said, oh, don't worry, Diane. We've all been vaccinated. We've got all the boosters. We're up to date. We're going to help keep you safe because you can't get it. And so it actually was, I thought I was going to lose my friends, made them feel even more virtuous because they had and thought they would be helping me
0: well wow. yeah so just to push a little bit on on the conference University of California was there what other what other sort of people was it all University people on the panel
1: uh yeah those were all from the same University
0: presumably to put on a conference there's got to be some financial advantage okay you can make money out of putting on a conference was 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 it that simple or was somebody in the background funding the conference?
1: It was a conference of different information scientists from around the world. It's an annual conference called the iConference, which I have participated in for many years. It Unfortunately, because, and maybe it's because of the nature of the fact that academics have to, have to usually get funding to do the research, to travel to the conference, um, that the nature of the research that's being funded then funnels down into the topics at the conference. Right. And I'm finding more and more that it's difficult for me to, to publicize or to share the research that I'm doing currently, uh, a lot of which I'm doing without funding and on my own now because it's the only way that I find that feels truthful. And if it just doesn't feel truthful to me, I can't get motivated to do it because now I'm looking at all these conference programs like the, the I conference or the other information science conferences. And it's all about stuff in the agenda, right? It's all about, oh, here's here's what we did to combat misinformation, disinformation. All of that is huge right now. And it's it's not mis or disinformation. It's just how do we get people to believe the narrative? And all of the, the best techniques that they have and the librarians working in practice trying to fight misinformation, fight disinformation. It's not that simple. Um, and so no one is actually taking a truly thoughtful approach. They're all just speaking to themselves in their own little echo chamber, telling themselves the same things over and over again to make them feel better. And it's it's no longer the academic debate that I remembered from when I was a student, from when what made me want to, want to become a researcher, where you could really ask the questions you wanted to ask. Um, it's no longer that. They're all just speaking to each other. And so, you know, like I was telling you about the UK Research Council funding and what motivates the funding, it has to fit their agenda. So then obviously the results from that research are going to be also supporting the agenda. So you
0: know, this this is a bit like consultancy, isn't it? Where the consultant invariably is going to tell the person paying his wages what, what he wants to hear, what he or she wants to hear. Yeah, it's but, really, yeah.
1: It's, it's similar to when you hear... Well, you know this research was sponsored by Pfizer, <laughs> um, but it's it's the same idea, right? I yeah. uh, I wonder about those people at Oxford who were funded by worked with AstraZeneca, which is now pulled from the market, right? Uh, I'm sure they enjoyed the financial benefits from that from a short period of time, but where are they now,
0: right? Yeah, and, can, and if you don't want to answer this, obviously you won't. But are are you able? Are you still able to work with the university or, is, or ha, has it meant that you've had to move on? Uh,
1: what I've what I've had to do is sort of change what I'm focusing on, because. Uh, so one of the things that I'm doing now is joining uh, campaigns, academic be- campaigns, for example, I'm a member of the Edinburgh Academics for Academic Freedom which is a UK-wide, there's branches around the UK. So I'm on the steering committee now for the Edinburgh branch. I'm um, in the Scottish Union for Education now, which is Stuart Waiten's group. I know you've had on before, um, Education, Not Indoctrination. And so those colleagues are the people who I'm finding my sort of intellectual home right now, finding ways to kind of subvert the majority of the system. I mean, I've had to learn so much about my rights for <laughs> the past little while that basically, you know, there's been a lot of unlawful dismissals. You've seen um Joe Phoenix has been in the news just in the last couple of days. She she won her case against the Open University for, uh, she was, they just, the tribunal decided she was unlo- unlawfully dismissed from the Open University for having gender critical research. Um, there's been a lot of these cases coming up. So I'm a member of the free speech union. And so we're a very, very small minority, uh, in academia right now. And so I've had to learn from, we're all sort of learning from each other about the fact that I guess if I were, you know, if I were, um, earlier on in my career, if I was a postdoc or something and, and not a professor, not a chair, I certainly not sure that I would be doing this, but I also don't think that now, if I were going to do it all over again, I wouldn't do it, I wouldn't do it now because I would see what's going on. And unfortunately, I think this is giving all academics a bad name. Uh, you've had some of that, some of the articles you've you've published recently in UK column from other dissidents. But I feel like um, we have an intellectual responsibility to continue to push to ask the questions and my future. I'm not sure. I, it, it gets harder and harder to, to fit in. Like I, I, I have, I have nothing against anyone in particular. I'm a Christian. I, I, you know, I, I try to accept everyone into my heart, just as Christ loved the church, right. That is truly what I, what I try to practice. But some of the agendas just seem evil. And I, and to do that, that's sort of what feels evil to me or doesn't feel right or doesn't feel truthful to me. I can't, I can't do it. My heart's not in it. And if my heart isn't in it, it doesn't work. And so I think some of the, the legal stuff that's going on right now, free speech union, supporting academics around the world, at least around Western culture, some of these things will have to happen to make it so that we are continued allowed to continue to do our jobs. But... It's all changed so much in the past five years that making sure that, you know, what I want to publish will get accepted by a journal. If I write something that is going to be immediately desk rejected, if I'm not going to get funded because it doesn't support the UN's sustainable development goals, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. It, it might be that, you know, it's not that I don't want to continue doing what I'm doing. It's just that being you're placed in a
0: straight off. jacket, isn't it? Yeah. You're in a straight jacket as to what you can do yeah. within the system. And, and, you know, to me, as a lay person in this subject, uh, as an academic, you you should have academic freedom. And that freedom has gone, right? Is what you're describing.
1: And that's, you know, that was one of the things that inspired me. And it's interesting when I watch how the tables have turned. When I was a, a university librarian over in America, we used to have banned books week and banned books week meant something very different now that it means now, because what's happening now in American libraries here, uh, there's more Americans being more vocal about this than there are here in the UK, but groups like the, the Scottish Union for Education are trying to help. Um, it is the, uh, you know, what I would essentially call the the pornography especially for underage children in libraries. They're turning the tables. What I mean by that is they're saying, oh, look, these, these people want to ban books. Well, maybe there are just parents who don't believe that these materials are appropriate for children. And, and, and it, it comes to me, it's almost like, if I continue, so this is an example of the evil, if I, if I go out and say, well, no, I, I don't believe that books should be should be banned, I don't leave any, but, well then you're saying essentially, you know, and some of the stuff that you cover as well on, on the news about, you know, the gender ideology is, well, I'm then promoting evil by basically saying, well, the state has more right to say what children can consume or do with their bodies than their parents do. And, you know, I I get really insulted when people, I've been Labeled a transphobe recently by some colleagues. Um, and that's one of the battles I'm fighting currently in my own professional body. Somebody complained about one of my tweets being transphobic. And the topic of that was um, I was the endometriosis South, uh, what's the name of it? South Coast, uh, down in the Brighton area, the South Coast region. They recently appointed a chief executive who is a trans woman who is now Steph and used to be some man's name, his father, children. And so I I tweeted saying this isn't right, especially as a woman who's lived with endometriosis and it's greatly impacted my life, caused me to not be able to have children, Uh, had lots of health problems over the years. And I just said, this isn't right. And there was outrage all over Twitter. I said, well, yeah, he's a biological man. He shouldn't be able to. Run an endometriosis charity, how is he going to understand what it's like and what we've so? Uh, I've been labeled transphobic, and I'm actually now uh ha- fighting a battle with the trustee board saying that well, you can't be an officer in this professional body, uh, and be transphobic at the same time. It's basically what they're telling me. Uh, so that's an example, yeah,
0: yeah. So, so this is another level of self. Training that you're having to do, which is to understand the law in order to stand up for your own rights.
1: Yeah, which is why the last couple of weeks with both Rachel beads, the social worker, and Joe Phoenix were really, really important. Uh, and hopefully there'll be more coming. But basically saying that uh, freedom of religion, in my case, Christianity, uh, freedom of belief, even around things like gender, Uh, Are protected beliefs under the Equality Act. And these are not things that are, um, they they can't lawfully discriminate against you. And actually the Rachel Mead case, I heard a a lecturer at the University of Glasgow talk about that, that basically them labeling her, in her case it was Facebook posts, just being a gender critical uh, person, that labeling her transphobe because of those posts actually now according to this this tribunal is constitutes illegal harassment so i've had to use that now against my professional body to say if you continue to label me as a transphobe and, and say i can't i can't have my professional credentials anymore then that is considered illegal harassment because i have protected beliefs and if you see their their same their own twitter accounts the same trustees that are accusing me of of being transphobic Um, They're all saying, well, here's, they're posting things about what they, what you can do in libraries and schools to subvert the potential government guidance against, you know, you can still transition. You don't have to tell your parents and here's some books in the library to help you figure out how to do that. It's really, really dangerous. Uh, But using this approach of not banning books, no censorship. Well, they're, they are censoring things. They're just censoring the way life has been until the last 10 years or so when all of this became an issue. Yeah.
0: Diane, a couple of questions, I think probably to, to end on, uh, it's been fascinating hearing, you know, what you've talked about and describing your life as a, as a professor, as an academic and what you've been up to. And you definitely qualify as a gutsy woman in my book, because (laughs) it, it does take a lot of guts to stand up against an establishment your workplace this is a difficult thing to take on particularly when you're isolated but what came into my mind is you know from your your professional um position with l- libraries and informatics do you think there's a future for libraries and and real books do you think they're going to stay or do you think the next thing we're going to see is they're going to get rid of books
1: I think as institutions there's if people keep if they keep going the way they are then yeah, I think so and that and that's just because if you look at maybe not people our age you can see behind me I have a lot of books and you you, you only see a portion of them here in this video but um, it when we see, when I think about children and, and knowing what my university level students went through and hearing people who have children and what their children did during the lockdowns and my friends that have children, uh, everything they do is on an iPad or something electronic, right? Um, and it's, I I don't know when they've reached, I don't know, I'm not a child development expert. It seems to me that if that's what you're doing as a child and you're always on watching the videos or the, the the tiktoks or whatever and they're not used to reading books are that i don't see how they're going to transition back to books when they get older if it's something that's been put into their minds when they're younger
0: yeah that's 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 a very interesting observation the the other thing i'd just like to mention is that in in talking to well in fact it's two ladies that come into my mind who who also had to tackle the system, uh, both of them in relation to children and social services. Yeah. But what were they talking about? They were talking about challenging local authority that was essentially harassing them, but certainly putting them under pressure. And in order to fight what the local authorities were doing, they were going to the local authority website and they were looking at the policy documents for their local council And then where they could show that the council was in breach of those policies, they were writing a letter quoting the policies and that letter went off to the local authority. Mm -hmm. What happened then? They got a reply and they're reading the reply and they're saying, well, that's not right because that's not what it said. When they then go and check what the policy is on the local authority website, the bit that they've used against the authority has now been changed. The wording <laughs> has been massaged. So that, and, and I find, and I've been told about this from two ladies, they don't know each other. And I thought, wow, so so there's a set of rules as, as to how we conduct ourselves on a site for a, a government body, a minor government body. And they're doing something wrong in accordance with their own rules. You challenge them. And what do they do? They simply change the wording of their own policy on the website. I find that unbelievably creepy.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is creepy. But, you know, thinking about library services and what they've been through the past few years. Um, it, you know, and, and, and we've seen library closures have been particularly bad, of unfortunately for you down south in England but it's you know it's coming in Scotland as well I think one of the things that coming out of the lockdowns or I like how Debbie calls them lockups that makes me laugh um, that there would both the local authorities were using that time period when the libraries were closed to continue to keep them closed right it was, uh, well, you did so well. You you managed to keep services going. Well, no. The, the problem was that the people that use library services the most are the people who are disadvantaged, people who may have lost their careers during that time period that need to come in and use a computer in the library to apply for jobs because you can't apply for a job in a piece of paper anymore. Um, there were some reports at a conference that I heard last year about delivering um, storytime services to you know, infants and very young children. Big surprise, they didn't like listening to librarians do storytime over Zoom, right? They wanted to come in and have that interaction with the other babies and the other mums and so on. Um, and so it seems to me that the people that need, at least in local authority, public libraries, the people that need them the most are the ones that lost the, the most essential services that libraries provide in terms of being social spaces, a place to go where it's free and it's warm and it's safe and it's, you know, if you are if you need to have somewhere to go, you can you always used to know that you could go to a library. I've never worked in a public local authority library, but I've spent lots of time doing projects with them and around them and supervising students doing placements on them. And, you know, you I I was very I felt very fortunate to work in university libraries when I was uh, still working in them, but looking at, you know, the the services that they provide, like disposal for used needles and, you know, advice on how you can take a shower and just very, very basic human needs that people go to. And that is the stuff that I think really takes a lot of heart for people to, to do that kind of work. I'm not sure I could do it, but... Those are the people that are getting hurt the most by these closures and by changing the policies and saying, oh, we really don't need a library in every neighborhood in Edinburgh because nobody uses them because it's all in Google. It's not. Um, you can't get a, 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 a free place to take a nap as I see, And when I go to the Mitchell Library, which is a huge research library in Glasgow, all the time I, I do research over there in the archives and I see men sleeping in the couches outside in the the stairs that's still happening where did they go during during that time i don't know because everything was locked so if there were lives lost that would have been to me one of the possible places where the government should be looking at how lives were lost and that might have been one aspect of it for homeless people i would think
0: yeah Diane, two two quick questions. One, when did when and how did you discover the UK column then?
1: I discovered the UK column when I was asked to do a keynote. You're gonna laugh at this. I was asked to do a keynote talk on health misinformation. <laughs> and I started looking around and how am I going to approach this? What am I gonna say? And uh at the time I was a big fan of Vernon Coleman, still am, and I was reading one of his posts, and it said something about the always excellent UK column in one of his posts, and I clicked. I'm like, "What's the UK column?" <laughs> that's that's how I found you.
0: Wow! Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, the last one is you, you're you're a gutsy woman, and you know you've you've been under the cosh, as it were, in your your job and your profession. You decided you weren't going to take it, and you stood up to be counted. What what would you say to other women out there to encourage them to stand up?
1: I say you you need to know your rights. You need to be clear that you know you can only pretend for so long before you just you start to break. And I actually reached that point for a while. Like I I can't do this anymore. So I think your heart will tell you, uh, your body will tell you, you will realize I can't keep doing this anymore. And to know that there are people out there who will support you. You just have to find them. Um, they're not in the most obvious places. They're maybe not the colleague next door to you anymore, but you just have to find them. And I think that's where I found a lot of my strength was, um, professionally finding the right groups to belong to, which meant that I've had to leave other other communities because they just don't mean anything to me before. But, you know, if you are an academic, you know, there's the Academics for Academic Freedom Group. There's the, you know, different education groups that are up here in Scotland. I know exactly where to go now, but there are other groups out there. But I think you really just need to find like-minded people you can't do it yourself it's way too much um but if you do find in whatever profession you're in whatever you're doing um other mothers who don't want their kids exposed to gender ideology even you know just find the people that you can support each other and know that you're not alone because you're not
0: brilliant i'm cheating because there's one more question but absolute last one do you think your faith has helped
1: yeah I do. It's become stronger through all of this. Um, Sometimes I, John's very good. John's very spiritual. So he reminds me when I start to get off track, just, you know, he'll send me a randomly spiritual text in the middle of the day. I'm like, where did this come from? He's like, I don't know. (laughs) But uh, I I try to remind myself uh, that there's a you know, what the apostles went through. You know, I, I hate to sound that that sort of intense about it, but the trials that they went through. Um, I also have a women's study Bible that highlights women in the Bible in different ways. And there are different women who are strong for different reasons, and they do a good job of having those little articles uh, that point that out. So... Um, Different women were strong for different reasons in the Bible, and so when I try to think about those 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 examples that can now speak to me, depending on whatever I'm I'm trying to do, that that is also really helpful to to find as well. Um, also, my minister is a you've met my minister. Obviously, you're at my wedding. She's quite a gutsy woman in her own way as well.
0: Yeah, uh, indeed. Yeah, because, of course, I met her and was able to speak to her, which yeah. is really interesting. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay, I'm going to say, Professor Diane Rasmussen-McCady, it's been really fascinating talking to you. Thank you. And, uh, I, I'm sure people are going to pick up on this because you, you've you opened a window on, into academia and some of the problems. And it, it, it's been a fascinating journey. So thank you very much thank you thanks for having me appreciate it it's great